Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Hey, welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. This episode is being recorded live from the NRFshop.org Digital Summit 2016. Today is Tuesday, September 27th, 2016. As usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason. Thanks for joining us, everyone. This is the first of our live podcast recorded at Summit. For the live audience at our next guest will be Milton Pappas. At, he is the SVP of Digital at Hudson Bay. And then at 2 o'clock, we're going to be doing a show news roundup with a special surprise guest. As a reminder, at 3.30, Jason and I are doing a breakout session on Level 2, Room C1 and C2. Because we're here at Summit, we have access to what I would call luminaries of the e-commerce and retail industry. And we're excited to join for our first live podcast, Brad Brown, who is the SVP of Digital Retail at REI. REI has over 140 stores in 35 states. I'm a co-op member and love shopping there. Uh, it's a unique retailer because they are a co-op. Welcome to the show, Brad. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Scott. Uh, Jason, thanks for having me here. Sure. Fun to be on the show floor. Yeah, we um, we had a little audio issue, so we appreciate you. Uh, you actually pitched in and helped. So it was, it was uh, fun to watch you guys working. Yeah, this, if this whole uh, digital thing doesn't work out, we do need more support for audio engineering. So just want to put that pitch in there. Great. <laughs> um, so uh, we usually start the show uh, for those of you that don't know you. Love to know kind of uh, kind of your your arc of your career and and how you ended up at REI and, and a little bit about what your span of influence is there. Okay, um, so the short story is uh, started in uh, you know out of college in retail at a chain that is now part of Macy's. Um, started out in accounting, uh, moved into IT. Changed jobs a few times, uh, ended up at uh, Egghead Discount Software, uh, running their IT business, was recruited away from that uh, to join REI um, as their vice president of IT, took them through Y2K, uh, the launch, uh, well, joined right after we had launched our uh, digital presence on REI.com and moved over and started running our digital business in 2006. Um, now that includes our core store, which everyone knows is REI.com. It includes a uh, discount and closeout business that we call, we used to call the outlet. We now call Garage. We did some rebranding of that and launched that in uh, August. And then also our mobile uh, app, shopping app. Cool. Cool. Very cool. Um, I feel like you forgot the most important question. What's your REI member number? Uh, member number is four three eight eight five five. So that's like a nineteen seventy four member number. Very impressive. It certainly, certainly has me beat. Wow. <laughs> Do you know your membership? Uh, I don't. I don't have it memorized. So I, I just go and give my phone number. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say I, I have learned from previous experience not to exaggerate your member number with Brad because he has access to the database. Okay. Yeah. I'll be careful with that. So. Um, so you've been to you've been at REI through the whole growth of e-commerce. Um, what was that like? And um, in the early days, were you kind of pounding the table saying we need to do stuff here? And then ultimately, the company kind of bought in, or, or were they already kind of thinking about it and forward thinking? Um, you know, Scott, honestly, it's a little mix of both. I mean, I was telling somebody last night at a party 
the location of which I don't really clearly remember, but um, <laughs> when we started REA.com, which was in 96, we had a very strong mail order business. So it was very easy for us to kind of plug an order into our mail order system. So we always had, we were always integrated. We were always kind of omni-channel before that became a word. Um, and the business grew relatively quickly as people moved from mail order, um, li- literally mail order, to phones and then to uh, digital orders. Uh, and then our business really kind of stalled out in about 2003 or four. Kind of, we, we had a hard time climbing out of the internet implosion. Remember those days? Um, and then... Um, when I took over in 2006, uh, we had not invested very much in the business at all. We were, you know, we had, as a company, had become reasonably happy with growing about twice the rate as our comp stores were growing. Um, we didn't have things like product reviews, which were pretty much industry, stand, you know, a base expectation of a website in 2006. And we had a really antiquated search. And I just, like you said, I started, um, I started going to battle. Uh, for more investment. Um, sometimes that was in people, in skills, um, and sometimes it was in technology, and usually it was in both. And we built that up over time. So coming from the IT side, it's interesting. A lot of the folks we have come from the marketing or the sales side. Do you think, uh, how did that help you kind of in your career uh, on the e-commerce side? Um, I think um, that that's an interesting question. I really haven't thought about it that much. I mean, I knew... Uh, from my IT background, the, like the tools and the technologies that we had and we were putting to bear on the site, but I really didn't know much about the business of doing that well. Um, so there was a huge opportunity for me to learn that side and I think ask questions that perhaps I might not have if I came from the marketing side. So um, I don't know if it helped me more than the team, but it, it uh, I felt pretty good about the technology so I didn't have to nose around in that. I didn't know much about how we went to, to market. It, I find it helps me hold people accountable. So if the database engineer comes back and says, it's going to take nine months to do this thing, you're like, what? Yeah, the smell test. Yeah. They call it the smell test. <laughs> did, you know, it just didn't quite smell right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I didn't. I really didn't have that problem. Um, I didn't have the problem. I, I still remember implementing reviews. Um, you know, the team kept saying it was going to take longer and longer. And so I, I had to dig into what kind of requirements they were trying to deliver and I found these elaborate reporting systems so they could tell the merchants when we were getting a bad review and everything else. And I just said, look, we're going to offer impl- customer review capability before holiday, and none of this matters. None of this other stuff matters. We'll do it later. We never did it because the reviews were more important. And guess what? The merchants were looking at the website to see what customers were saying about the products they bought. Yeah. So it worked itself out. Great is often the enemy of good with yes, regards absolutely. to those features. Yeah. Uh, so, Brett, what what is your whole scope today? Like, are are you involved in in marketing and traffic generation to the site? Are you involved in digital inside the stores? Um, so one of the things that's um, I, I think I think I can say is unique about REI is we are pretty disciplined about roles and responsibilities. So, in your example, I I look to our marketing department to drive traffic to the site. Um, I look to them, um, and it, it's it's one of those things where it's very clear that I look to them for email traffic, natural search. You know, there's people in marketing that help us, with, and then I've got people on our team 
that work on optimizing natural search. Paid search is Marcom Spend. So I look to them for traffic on paid search. Um, affiliates business, I look to them. So just as I have merchants on our site that worry about merchandising the site, they don't buy the merchandise. Uh, a merchandising group does that. So we're, we're pretty good on, on kind of delineating responsibilities. Got it. So the traditional merchants are responsible for procurement and curation, and the digital merchants are sort of like digital visual merchants. Yeah, well said. Okay, cool. Uh, and one of the things that's always really interesting is REI has a very unique business model, the co-op. The co-op, yep. And so having worked for a few uh, traditional for, for-profit companies and, and then being in a co-op for a long time, what, you know, how, how is that model working for you guys? What are some of the pros and cons from your perspective? Um, so uh, first, a little clarification. We are a... P- for-profit company. We are not in this for exercise. Um, but that said, um, the co-op model is a, we're a private company. We're owned by members. Scott and Jason, you guys are both members, as am I. Um, I think the biggest advantage we have from the co-op model is um, we don't have uh, the equity markets to please on a quarterly basis. So we can take a very long-range approach. Um, we can do things in the short run that would be that, that a lot of public companies wouldn't think about doing, like what we did last year around closing our doors for Black Friday, which is, I think, my fourth or fifth highest volume day and just, you know, kissing multiple million dollars of revenue away from my business and certainly a lot more from our physical stores. Um, so we can think about the long term. We can think with the members' best interest involved, uh, both in how we deliver a customer experience, digitally or physically. Um, the... Uh, the drawback um, is we have uh, we're more constrained about access to capital, right? If we can't fund and build enough cash in our treasure chest, we have to go to a bank and ask for a loan, and that's a hell of a lot more expensive than floating stock. Um, I think the other drawback is, and, and some people see this as a pros and cons, as a as a, a pro, but you know, in a public company, you have a board of directors, you have uh, shareholders, and you have management that worry about the long-term viability of your company and your and um, your success as a business. We don't have the shareholders. So in some ways, that's very liberating. In some ways, that's an additional burden to really be a good shepherd and steward for the co-op because you don't have the public oversight that you might like. And the way it works is there's some kind of formula where you guys say a certain you, – you make a certain profit and then the rest is returned to members. Is that kind of my understanding? I know right. I get a check and I always enjoy that. Yeah. So we <laughs> – uh, the basic working model is uh, we give back to members 10% of their online – or their full price purchases. And that's – at our business uh, last year, I think that totaled up to be about $140 million, mm-hmm. which is another challenge because – most public companies would keep that and even be reluctant to do a cash dividend where we do, you know, 10% of our of their purchases, significant portion of our profit is given back. The good news is almost all of that comes back into the company. Yeah. And what, what's also interesting is you don't really have to have a loyalty program. Your business model is your loyalty program in, in a way. Yeah, very true. In fact, it's interesting because in the olden days, uh, that all define as... You know, early 2000, late 
the late 1900s, um, people people understood membership as a benefit, not as a loyalty program. But with the you know everybody's got a loyalty program. So I was actually talking to somebody yesterday, and they go, "Yeah, you got a great loyalty program." And I kind of went, "Well, it's not really a loyalty program; it's a dividend for your patronage because you're a member." Um, but I've I've uh, got a lot of this gray hair, and a lot of the hair that's missing has been acquired by trying to explain that to people. So <laughs> I just don't. I said, yeah, it's pretty good. Is it fair to call it an affinity program? It does feel like more than just a vehicle for giving back the dividend, right? Like, uh, You call it what you want. Like I said, I got a lot of gray hair and a lot <laughs> less hair from trying to explain this. But, yeah, I mean, it encourages it, – it, it's a very important part of our flywheel, right? We give $140 million back to members. Almost all of that comes back into the co-op the following year in terms of a, a purchase. So. I think of it as a business model where your customers are your shareholders. So you, you have one constituent versus two. And that that's interesting because then you, it, you know, whenever you have two of something, the chances of being misaligned are higher than when you have one of something. So um, that's, that's kind of how I think about it at a macro level. Um, so you guys are based out of Seattle. The uh, flagship store is amazing. Um, I love going to that and seeing what's new. Uh, last time I there, the rock wall is kind of the cool new thing. Is, yep. is that still the, the big thing? What is that thing, like 50, 60 feet? Yeah, it's 55 feet, yeah. I think. Still gets a lot of uh, a lot of use in the Seattle store. We've stopped putting uh, climbing walls in new stores. A uh, little bit of square footage issue, a little bit of staffing issue, and with the little insurance, advent, little insurance issue, little yeah, that's a little risk management issue, yeah. yeah. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of indoor climbing gyms now that have a lot more features and functions than than we could ever do. So, climbing still important part of our business, but but not that experience. Yeah. So, as a uh, Seattle business, I have to ask the Amazon question. So, um, you know, we talk about Amazon a lot on the show. You and I have chatted about Amazon quite a bit. Um, would love to know kind of how you feel about it and. Um, you know, are they friend, foe, and, and what's it like having that 800-pound gorilla kind of in your backyard? They, they don't have to give 10% back to the No, uh, they don't. The, uh, the members. They, don't, they don't give a fraction of any percent back to anything. Um, so that might tip your hat to how I think about them. I think they're absolutely a, a foe. I thought the conversations we had yesterday were, were interesting, and I think the the uh, the challenging thing for all retailers is Amazon's one of the most has become in consumers' eyes one of the most beloved brands in the United States, and yet I think everybody at this conference, if they're not scared to death about how they're going to compete with Amazon, um, kind of curious where they've been lately. Um, so we're, they're a they're a big deal for us. They're the number one uh, website customers go when they leave REI uh, and don't purchase. Um, they're selling a lot of products that we sell, um, and uh, I think they're very hard to compete with. You know, there's that saying, you know, you got to skate to where the puck's going to be. I think with Amazon, you almost have to skate where they can't push the puck um, to be successful. Yeah, find a corner of the rink. Um, so what do you what do you guys – so, so uh, I'd love to hear REI, but if you're not comfortable talking about that, strategically, how do you recommend people uh, – you know, skate. You know, put the puck to where Amazon's not. One one thing Jason and I always talk about is private label products is a way to kind of you know you have your own brands. Mm-hmm. Looking at my REI bag over there, I have an REI tent. Uh, I'm finding my purchases increasingly at REI are kind of more branded kind of things that you guys mm-hmm. have. Um, that seems like an obvious one. What what other things do you do there? Yeah, I, private brands are 
very important to us for that reason. One, only place you can get it. Um, and two, you know, we try and deliver a little bit higher profit margin and value for the price. So that's a, that's a big and important part of our business that we'll continue to work on growing. I think um, one of the few other ways to compete with Amazon is to truly differentiate your brand. Uh, harder for us because we're a house of brands. So how do you differentiate a experience buying an Arc'teryx jacket on on uh, Ariad.com or in a store versus uh, on Amazon? And that that's a that's a challenge for all of us. But I think to um, I think successful retailers in the future will truly have a a uh, a brand presence that is differentiated. And is compelling enough that even when people may start their search on Amazon, as more and more people do, um, when they narrow that search, we believe strongly they're going to they're going to bump into us at some point in their outdoor lives, and are going to find out enough about us to be attracted to the things that we stand for as a brand, and will be willing to transact with us because of that differentiation. Uh, it's a it's a big part of our bet. And um, you guys seem to be one of the early companies that I noticed was doing kind of store within a store with brands, uh, particularly North Face. Seem, you seem to have a really good kind of relationship with those guys. And I don't believe uh, North Face is directly available on Amazon. Um, does that resonate with brands? Do you kind of tell them that story and say, hey, let's, you know, uh, Amazon's not here to build your brand. We are. Let's kind of work together. Have you guys tried that kind of approach with, with the brands? Yeah, it's actually it's a great question pretty insightful on our business we've spent quite a bit of time our merchants our head merchant um, you know we see ourselves as a um, outdoor especially lifestyle retailer and um, we part of that is specialty and what makes things special are curated assortments from the 650,000 backpacks you can buy um, on Amazon to the probably maybe 2,000 on, on REI. So our merchants, have they've curated that assortment to things that we think are appropriate for the activities that we support. And we work really hard with our vendors explaining our view on specialty. And frankly, our view on specialty does not include Amazon. I think it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to be special in a sea of 650,000 backpacks. Um, it is easier to be specialty when you're a merchant you know your market, you know your business, you know the products, and you can go in and pick those products that you think are unique and best suited to fit our customers' needs. Um, we, we have those conversations with, Am- with vendors who do business on Amazon frequently. Yeah. Um, delicate, um, but uh, we, we think it's important. Yeah, and th- this kind of starts to bleed over into one of Jason's favorite topics, which is omnichannel. But do you have any data on showrooming? So, you know, you have all these awesome displays of backpacks. I go in there, I try on four of them, and then I go to Amazon so I can save 5% kind of a thing. Do you, do you guys, are you able to track that at all or any indication kind of what? That's always kind of the the tough yeah. thing. You spend all this time and money curating that in-store experience, and then people kind of pop out and kind of are drawn by that smaller discount somewhere else. Yeah, so... Uh couple of data points. One, uh, start digital first. And we, we, we know that Amazon's the first place people go if they don't buy on RAI.com. Um, it's not where they buy. Uh, it's where they go, and then they usually go somewhere else to buy. So that's, uh, you know, kind of a little bit encouraging, a little bit depressing. Uh, in the stores, one of the things that we worried about, we put in um, – 
free Wi-Fi uh, in the early 2000s, I think. It, well, probably 2006, 2007, I guess. And that was when the fear of showrooming was perhaps at its highest. Um, and we just felt it was the right thing to do for our customers. We knew that more and more customers were pulling out mobile phones uh, even then. Um, and our concern was exactly what you said, that they would you know, scan the barcode, use one of umpteen million scanner price lookup things, buy it on Amazon while in the store. And interestingly enough, the number one place people go on our wireless uh, networks in our stores is REI.com. Yeah. Uh, and Amazon often isn't in the top five, which is interesting. It's REI.com and then typically to a, a vendor site like the North Face, Arcteric, Solomon, something like that. So uh, we know I, what's happening uh, less I, than... I like it because, like, let's say I've narrowed it down to two-tenths or something. I like to be able to see the online reviews. So that's kind of... I, I think it is good, great that you guys kind of... You could take the negative view, which is, oh, my God, we're giving people a path to go price shop us. But I actually use it to pull down the content. Um, yeah. So it's pretty... Uh, it's a good feature. Yeah, I I tend to not uh, buy into the showrooming concern very much. I, in my mind, showrooming's been going on ever since the second retailer opened, right? And so, you know, folks already were going into your your stores for the best experience, and then maybe they're going to Dick's or Sports Authority or or wherever uh, to price shop you, and that, that used to be really inconvenient. But but we know lots of consumers do it. There's well-worn parking lots between Best Buy and Walmart where, where folks physically showroomed. Um, obviously, digital reduces some of that friction, but it also lets you know um, that, hey, you're within you know a, a small uh, percentage of Amazon's price, and you can get the goods right now from the guy that just helped you make the selection. Sometimes it gives the customer permission to buy from you the fact that they, they could see Amazon's price. Well, I think you're right. I think the other thing and I, I felt this in the early days of the showrooming conversation was if, if you think about the investment that someone has when they've already driven to a store, parked, walked to the store, thinking about probably leaving the home, thinking about what they were going to go to Arietta buy, um, they're in the aisle. They're, in your case, looking at the, the last two things they've narrowed their choice down to. And I... I think the difference in price has got to be a significantly bigger hurdle than it is in our business today to say, to have that consumer actually go, hey, you know what, I'm not going to buy it today. I'll buy it. I'll buy it today and I'll get it in three days and then then it'll be cool. Right. They've made such an investment. They're so into the buy at that point. Um, I think that's another thing that has knocked it way down. One other thing that I've always found to be unique about REI, and I, I suspect is a, a nice competitive differentiator, is even before the digital pre-shopping was really busy, you guys were producing a lot of your own content. So you you talked about um, curating the assortment. Not only do you curate the assortment, but then you tend to publish these buying guides. And I have to imagine they're somewhat controversial with the, the vendors because you, you very bluntly say, hey, for this use case, we like this product over this product, or here's here's the attributes you should be thinking about when deciding to buy a tent. Um, and once digital took off, that was a really valid... I have to believe that must have been a really valuable um, repository of content that, you know, still today the the big assortment retailers like Amazon don't have. They're not going to help you pick a tent. Yeah, I mean, content's always been 
kind of an interesting. I, I I don't really think of it that much as a, as a differentiator because it's just something we've always done. But even in the early days of RIA.com, uh, you know, we didn't get a lot of content from vendors. They didn't. They had catalogs that were designed to appeal to a merchant to buy their product, and so. From very early days, we created our own product information. You know, we had requirements of 160 words, and we needed these attributes because we were starting to understand a little, little about search. And um, it's something that, um, you know, the the people that research those products are outdoors people, um, and they, you know, we've got, I think, 13 or 14 people in that team right now, and that's what they do. They grab the product, they touch and feel it, they weigh it. They, I mean, it, it's important. So it's a it's a big deal for us. Cool for our um, recorded audience. Uh, there appears to be a dance off between a T Rex and a Velociraptor. If you're hearing screams and whoops, um, it's not because uh, Jason's in the booth. Although we we did have some fans stop by earlier. <laughs> uh, exactly. I was going to mention that periodically Scott's getting up and dancing on the table, and that that's tending it's a little to distracting. Some yeah. I think I can dance better than that Velociraptor. He uh, he had the little arm thing going. I got I got more arm span than he does. Uh, I don't know if you realize this, but you're referencing a very popular recent Razorfish campaign for the the Lonely T Rex. I did not know that. We'll we'll, we'll cover that another day. Um, but uh, Brett, uh, we did want to talk a little bit about Omnichannel. A, a lot of retailers, one of the the weapons they're using against Amazon is uh, pickup in store, which I know you have a robust feature, but also ship to store, which I haven't heard as much from you. Like, how, how do you guys think about Omnichannel and what's What's in the the funnel for you in terms of those kinds of features? Yeah, um, I think I feel pretty strongly that we've been a pretty good omni-channel retailer before there was omni-channel retailing. Um, you know, we did uh, re, uh, what we call retail store pickup um, that was not having store people actually pick the product off the physical store's shelves but actually send it on the next replenishment truck. Wildly successful. We had, at the time, uh, this was before free shipping on RIA.com, I think we had about 35% of our business was getting picked up in the store. So we're we're going to implement some software um, at the start of 17 that will allow us to actually do same-day picking, same-day pickup for for items that are assorted in that store. and I think um, there, there's emerging conversations inside of REI now is should we incent customers to do that instead of having them ship to, the, ship to their house um, if, if the product's available. Again, it is one of those situations where uh, far and away the biggest assortment is on REI.com. Uh, there's a lot of stores that are a lot smaller than that flagship store you talked about that just don't have the assortment. Um, we're trying to figure out what that footprint is and, and how do we incent people to do that because it gets traffic in the stores, and that's a big deal. Do you guys do ship from store at all? Uh, we do ship from store. We started that uh, early 15. Um, so, you know, as you know, especially at the end of season when you have inventory running down, you might not have any in the warehouse and you still have a lot in the store. We, we started shipping... Uh, my business went absolutely through the roof when we did that. Um, the other thing it did for us is it helped the merchants understand where they had product, where they shouldn't have product. Because as we think about it, we really should never ship a full price 
product from a store, it should be in the warehouse because we can pick and pack it shipper, uh, less expensively and get it to the customer faster. So um, it's challenged the merchants a lot to look at kind of their assumptions on what their distribution of digital and physical sales were. and um, But it's been a big lift to our business, and it's helped us um, kind of improve our margins because you take fewer markdowns if you can sell through that stuff a little bit better. It's been... Uh, really good for our business. Yeah, I've often wondered that the knock I always hear about ship from store is you have you know this expensive retail space. You've got people that are trained to be more retail friendly, and suddenly you're asking them to do pick pack ship kind of. Yeah. Uh, how have you guys found that's a problem, or is your your store associate able to kind of do both things? Um, or is there a designated person that does that kind of thing? Yeah, we've assigned it. It's a role for the shipping and receiving team. Okay. Um, we've got a pretty automated process, so they get alerts back in their workstation. Um, they're, you know, we typically in every store have a shipping and receiving clerk working, you know, 10 to 12 hours a day. Uh, we have products coming in via UPS. we got our replenishment trucks. we got stuff shipping out now that we're doing um, ship from store. Um, they stay pretty busy running around the stores picking orders, and yeah. it's it's been a good lift for them because we kind of double count the sale. So when we started this, a lot of stores would come in on a on a Monday morning after the shipping and receiving guy, and basically have their sales day already made, sitting in orders waiting to to pick back and ship. So nice. they uh, they tended to like that quite a bit. <laughs> No, I, I guess I. Uh, you mentioned that you can usually ship faster and cheaper from the the DC. Like the picking costs aside, some retailers are finding that man, if I have that full price good in a store that's in the same market as the customer, that local chip shipping can actually be cheaper and faster than shipping from yeah, the that, fulfillment that, center. You, you called me on a little data fact that I said, and then I said I should probably clarify that. So we're clarifying it now. Yeah, in many cases, if you're if you're within that first zone from a store, you're going to get it the next day. And you'll get it for a couple of bucks cheaper than um, coming from one of our three distribution centers. Got it. Caught me. Uh, switching, I forgive you. Yeah. Switching gears. Troy, a little, Troy will be happy. <laughs> <laughs> switching gears a little bit. Um, you know, we talk a lot about mobile. Most retailers we talk to have seen mobile as traffic on their website uh, up over half. Um, some retailers are split on should they focus on mobile web versus an app. Uh, would love to know kind of where are you guys in your mobile evolution and, and what's your, your kind of uh, philosophy around mobile? Um, so, Scott, you pack like five questions into one question. You do it brilliantly. Um, let's tackle those a little bit by bit. I heard mobile web, mobile app. Um, I think uh, if you're not designing your website in a responsive way and running two code bases, you're you've got you're playing catch up ball. We completely redesigned our website, launched it last fall, uh, 100% responsive. Um, so we, you know, at that time we retired our code base that was running our m dot our ad at com. Um, and the other thing we did at the time, and, and when we did that redesign, we optimized it for mobile. By that I mean, you know, uh, as you moved to uh, breakpoints, you know, being able to tap your finger on a color was a lot more important to us than being able to click a mouse on that color. So we 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 did a. I think the team did a really good job with the UI of that. We retired our um, M dot code base. The other thing we did is we started saying, okay. Now, how do we make our mobile app 
unique and how do we deliver features and functions that are unique to mobile and we're still just getting into that space right the mobile app we know where you are so let's take advantage of that um let's take advantage of the fact that there's information about your payments and your other things on your phone that we can leverage so uh, have you guys and it's okay if you don't want answers have you guys crossed over that 50 percent mobile threshold that most other folks have kind of hit uh or is your customer I, base not as no we're i think we're right around 50 percent okay you know it depends on traffic sources you know i i think we're almost 80 percent of our emails are open on mobile now wow. um i think uh I think last fall, um, we had our first month where over 50% of our traffic was mobile, and that was uh, December. Um, and I, 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 I don't have the data in front of me, but if we're not 50% now, I think the way we thought about the progression of mobile, this would be, will be the first holiday season where over half of our traffic consistently comes from mobile devices. Got it. When, when you have a major uh, go outside campaign, is that mostly mobile traffic on uh, those yeah, days? Yeah, it's huge. The whole the whole opt outside thing was that we did last year was um, it, when we do it this year, it will be a much more um, mobile first design. We kind of scrambled last year, and we were a little unsure if this was going to blow back in our face or be an accelerator, and yeah, it well, turned out to be. Let's uh, let's let's tell the audience about that. That's a good time to segue in. This. So you, so. So for folks that don't know, last Black Friday, you guys decided to close your retail stores, um, and you called it opt-out. Um, opt-outside. Opt-outside. And uh, why did you do that? Why would you do something crazy like why that? Why would we do something crazy like that? Well, because we could. Um, now the, the real – I mean, this started out from um, some meetings we were having in, you know, post-Christmas. Uh, and it's always been a struggle for us to stand out from the crowd in Christmas, I think, is it – it's a struggle for every retailer, right? You get this Thanksgiving paper that's four inches thick, and it's, you know, how early can I get to the mall to uh, to fight some people for a 65-inch TV? Um, and one of our executives had the idea and kind of said in a joking way, why, why don't we just close? Why, let's just, let's not participate. And that, you know, we started riffing on that idea. Uh, we came up with this idea around opt outside. Um, we thought it was just perfectly aligned with our brand and our desire to get people outdoors, um, and uh, decided to take a risk. And you know, I was uh, in the board meeting when we kind of floated the idea to our board, and it was it was interesting, right? You, you're going to do what? Uh, <laughs> but when you break the numbers down on that one day of business, and you take take it down to gross margin and the fixed cost you already have. There wasn't, there's millions of dollars of exposure, but it just seemed like the right thing for us to do. Um, we, we built a, a campaign that was um, uh, ambitious, but cautious uh, at the same way. Cause again, we didn't know if, right. You know, we're going to open on Saturday. So like, are you against retail or are you against the madness? And it was really against the madness and, you know, take your family, go outside, have fun, share it with us, um, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna do it again this year in a much much more significant way. Any social metrics from kind of like how many tweets did you see or any anything like that? that kind of uh, you can share. There are. I don't have them in my head. It was okay. it was it was way beyond our wildest imaginations. I mean, we had 
um, we had national parks in 10 states uh, open for free. We had state parks in five states uh, open for free that day. We had a lot of companies in the outdoor business say, you know what, we're going to close our offices. Uh, not not those those that were retailers didn't close their stores. We're encouraging them to um, get fully on the bus um, this year and, and close. Um, we've got some uh, some companies that are going to join us in a pretty significant way this year. And you know, we're we have this notion of starting a movement. Um, and we'll see. We'll see what happens this year. Awesome. So you're the digital guy. They close the stores for a day, and uh, volume goes way up on the on the digital platforms. Did you immediately come in and say this ought to be a weekly thing? We ought to. <laughs> well, actually, what we did on the on the website uh, and the mobile site is we put on uh, we put up an interstitial page, um, and we. We actually started doing this on Thursday because we wanted people that were shopping with us on Thursday to know that we are not going to be open on Friday. So we're actually, you know, don't expedite your order because there's not going to be anybody here to, to do that for you. Uh, and then on uh, on Black Friday, we, we, had a, we had a page up that said, we're not here. You're happy to browse. You're happy to shop. Just know that no one's going to work in your order uh, until, I think it was Saturday at, at 8 a.m., um, we originally wanted to take the site down and just say we're closed. Um, but the whole effort around Black Friday at RAI last year was let's just keep it as simple as possible. And it turned out as we looked into shutting our site down, we had actually not engineered it to do that um, intentionally. And I remember the conversation I had with the CEO because I said, Jerry, you know, I know you want it to be easy. It turns out it's easy to do this by accident. It's very hard to do on purpose. And so that's when we, we picked the interstitial page. Oh, the irony. Yeah. Kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it, was, it was actually really, it was going to be really, really hard for us to do. And then even harder to start back up because we had never done that either. It's a little scary, like flipping the switch yeah. on the machines and hoping they all come back up. Yeah. It's like showing up at a trade show and expecting the audio to work. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I wanted to change topics for a minute. Uh, one of the things that seems like a unique opportunity, uh, most retailers really struggle to get the majority of their customers to identify themselves, right? Like, so the overwhelming majority of web traffic is anonymous. The user hasn't had a compelling reason to log in on the site. The overwhelming number of purchases in the store are completely anonymous. Um, and because of your membership model and because, you know, everyone wants to earn their dividend, I'm assuming a much higher percentage of your traffic is known to you. And I'm just, A, wondering if that's true, and B, that would seem to really open the doors from, for some interesting personalization opportunities. Uh, another well-packed series of questions there. You guys are very crisp at this. Uh, personalization is one of those things, and you both know this very well. Anybody that's listening to this probably has uh, a range of opinion, but it, it's been one of those things that this industry has really struggled to kind of figure out and how to make work well, and, and we are of the same uh, ilk. Um, our we have a pretty good chunk of our traffic that's known to us, but not as much as we'd like to have. Um, certainly in the stores, we know those purchases. So if we can, you know, one of our challenges is how persistent is that cookie versus how frequently do people visit RIA.com. And 
Um, we're trying to do things to make that cookie more persistent. We're trying to get do things to get people back more frequently so we can keep hitting them. Um, personalization, though, is still a challenge for us. We, we've experimented with things like, <clears throat> you know, if someone's coming to us uh, from the desert southwest in winter, let's not show them snowy slopes. Let's show them the desert and some arroyo cactus and a hiking trail and it's interesting because we do this, and a lot of people go, we don't want to see that. We can see that by looking out our window. We wanna, we're want to. we thinking about a ski trip, and we want to see, you know, so you're kind of going, boy, how do you figure, how do you figure that out? So um, we're, we're doing more and more, um, but I would still say baby steps. We still haven't um, really figured out a way to do that well. It's a challenge. Brad, you've been in this industry for a long, long, long time. Um, what do you think is the future of e-commerce? You've seen things. You know, sometimes things happen faster than you think they do. Sometimes they take a while. We've been talking about mobile for ten years, and then you know, we're kind of there. Um, what do you? You know, I'd love to hear you pontificate on the future of e-commerce. What are What are some things listeners should be thinking about as kind of the next waves? Uh, I think more and more. And more and more mobile, 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 mobile. Um, I think, uh, you know, there's still, still, you know, websites are going to be important. I think um, if we look at the consuming public and we think about multicultural millennials, how they shop is going to be the next thing um, for retail. Um, you know, think inter- like texting or chatbots. Chatbots, I think, are them? a very interesting technology. Um, I think uh, things like you know a lot in Asia, a lot of you know commerce on WeChat, uh, in chat with with retailers is going to be interesting. Um, I, I think more and more will be done on mobile. You know, it was interesting to see there's some some chatbot booths around the show. Uh, it was interesting talking to them and how they're approaching it. It's not something that we've started looking at, but I think um, I think most of the future is going to be around how are those multicultural millennials going to be shopping, and they're like like folks our age um, to put us all in one big category. They all have, you know, I talked to one of the Ray Greenlee scholarship finalists, and she likes shopping with her friends in a mall, and I'm kind of going, this is an endangered species, but. <laughs> But that's what she likes doing. It's it's almost therapeutic for her. So there's still going to be those customers, and we can't lose track of them. But I think uh, I think millennials are going to shop in a much more social way. I think I can imagine um, this individual in the future, you know, shopping and sharing pictures and getting feedback real time, whether that's through you know Messenger or chat or Snapchat or you know whatever it is. Um, and having that be a digitally social experience, I think, is going to be an interesting opportunity. Yeah, on the topic of millennials, uh, all the surveys you read, they always score uh, sustainability very high in their purchasing decisions. You guys have been kind of living that as a brand. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's like a purposeful statement. It just seems to be part of the brand. Um, has that helped you with the millennial audience, do you feel? And, and what is kind of the sustainability kind of philosophy of REI? Yeah, yeah. Um, sustainability philosophy first we'll try and do things in the most sustainable way we can do them um, it's actually kind of part of what how we go about any any of the work we do we uh, best example of this is we just opened our third distribution center in Goodyear Arizona uh, 
we realized going in, or we realized in the process that if we could get a few, you know, not a few more, another kind of array or two of solar panels on the roof, we could be energy neutral. Um, it would cost another quarter of a million dollars. We did that in a heartbeat. Uh, we're going to be the first uh, zero energy lead platinum distribution center in the United States. We haven't got the certification yet, but we're shipping from that. We did a whole bunch of re-engineering of our air conditioning and our air circulation systems, and it's literally off. It's it's on the grid because we sell power back a lot of the time. Um, so those are things that we just, they're part of our DNA. Wow, very cool. Well, Brad, it's happened again. Uh, we have used our allotted time, um, but we're super grateful to you for taking the time out of the busy schedule and sure appreciate your insights. As a reminder to our live audience here, uh, next up we have Milton Pappas, um, who's with HPCE. And after that, uh, we're going to do a news recap of the day, including a special guest. Uh, Thanks, Brad. We really appreciate you having you and enjoy the rest of your show. I will. Thanks so much. And uh, know that I will continue to be an avid listener. Thanks, Thanks, you guys. Thanks. We appreciate it. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.